0: Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left brain robots, right brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey.
1: Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global, Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or sub by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride, but it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, gold and commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive asset allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.
2: Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges and expenses of the Rational Funds. This and other important information about the fund is contained in the prospectus, which can be obtained by calling 800-253-0412 or at www.rationalmf.com. The prospectus should be read carefully before investing. The Rational funds are distributed by Northern Lights Distributors, LLC member FinRAS IPC. Rational Advisors Incorporated and Resolve Asset Management Incorporated are not affiliated with Northern Lights Distributors, LLC. Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt You podcast, brought to you by Resolve Asset Management Global. I'm your host, Adam Butler, Chief Investment Officer, also joined today by Mike Philbrick, the CEO of Resolve Global. And our special guest today is Alfonso Pecatello, also known as Macro Elf on Twitter. And obviously, we spend an hour discussing the current macro environment, and Elf leads us through the core indicators that he's watching to inform his view on the timing and potential magnitude of what he views as a virtually inevitable coming recession. We talk about implications for asset prices, explore the 2000 to 2003 market analog and why both the macro environment and the equity and bond trajectory may be following a similar path, and finally, what investors might consider doing to navigate what is likely to be a very challenging environment over the next three to five years. Without further ado, enjoy our conversation with Alfonso Pecatello.
3: Welcome, everyone. Today, we're riffing with Alfonso
4: Pecatello. Did I get that right? Not too bad, Mike. Not too bad. (laughs) The
3: the macro compass, of course, and also known as Macro Alf on Twitter in the financial Twitter space. Alf, it's great to have you on. Let's just jump in. Why don't you get started with letting everybody know a quick history, your background, why we should be listening to this particular fellow on Fintwit. You've got quite an immense amount of experience, both in Banking and managing assets within large financial institutions. So, love to give everybody a little bit of a background on you and
4: what you're doing, and then all of the great research you're doing. Mike, Adam, thanks for hosting me. A pleasure to be here with Resolve. Um, Who am I? Southern Italian guy, accent very thick. I think I can't even hide it if I want to. I run money for ING Bank. It's a large European bank, should say global, probably. It's everywhere. It was a $20 billion institutional portfolio, mostly fixed income, but also credits, equities, effects at the end of the mandate, cash and derivative instruments, strategies running from relative performance against the benchmark to absolute return strategies. And that was what I did until the end of 2021, so for roughly eight years At the end of 2021, I decided that it was about time to try something different, which wasn't compliance constrained, let me put it like that. Because working in a highly regulated industry, you cannot really share the knowledge with people. It's impossible. And correctly so, it's a highly regulated industry. So I decided to leave the industry and basically start my own firm, which is called the Macro Compass. And it focuses on sharing all these insights and macro knowledge I was lucky enough to accumulate over the years. Having a large institutional role allows you to chat with central bankers, policymakers, hedge funds, strategists, and accumulate a wealth of knowledge together with trading this stuff, which also gives you some market knowledge on top of that. And now I'm sharing this with people. Fantastic.
2: You publish prolifically as well. I mean, I've noticed that you're always commenting on something. You've got a narrative that adapts through time as new information comes in and emails and reports that are sent out on a regular basis. What
4: are you watching right now? What's catching your attention? So Adam, I'm focusing on when and if and how hard the recession will hit. What I learned in financial markets is that everybody can catch headlines by screaming that something is going to happen without giving a context of when, how, how hard. So we are hearing now that the recession is coming, but when is that? How bad is that? Are we actually getting a recession? It's a very important call for a bunch of reasons. First, every recession over the last 100 years was inevitably able to slow down inflation pretty remarkably. So if we get a recession, well, it's bad, first of all, because people lose a job in a proper recession and earnings actually drop. But at the end of the day, in 12 to 16 months, you actually have a drop in inflation, too, which might change the Federal Reserve reaction function. So it's important for that. And also, it's important, obviously, for what's pricing across markets. From the bond market to the equity market to credit spreads to FX, it's really important to understand when, if, and how hard the next recession is going to be. So that's the focus at the moment.
2: There have been some articles out recently. I'm specifically referring to an article in Bloomberg the last couple of days, forget whether it was Tuesday, Wednesday, suggesting that maybe Powell and some other sitting Fed chairs or Fed board members are coming to the conclusion that they're quantitative easing policy over the last decade may have done more harm than good. Have you been noting any particular speeches or any other data or things that are suggesting that they may adopt a different reaction function going forward, even once
4: inflation ebbs? First, the answer to your first question on wealth inequality, let's say negative effects of quantitative easing, there are two main negative effects, I would say that have been quantified by research over time. The first is a rise in unproductive businesses and use of capital, because when the hurdle rate is 0%, basically, all zombie companies and all zombie business models seem feasible. When interest rates are zero, even sending a rocket to Mars in 30 years seems to be a good idea because as long as the cash flows are far out in the future and there's a promise that these cash flows will grow over time... If your hurdle rate and your discounting rate is 0%, it looks like a good idea. So it basically increases the misallocation of capital. Let's say that's the first quantifiable negative effect. And the second one is that it actually was counterintuitive for many reasons. In Germany or in Europe, there was a research that showed that when real interest rates became negative, people started saving more which is completely counterintuitive, and you would expect people to invest more and to spend money in the real economy when real interest rates are zero or below zero. But the reality was different. People understood that economic opportunities out there to actually invest were not many. So what they ended up doing was investing more money in order to try and achieve their financial objectives. So it was counterintuitive from that perspective. And last of all, bank lending. People live under this assumption that the more financial liquidity in the system, the more banks will lend. But I've worked for a bank for a lot of time and I can tell you that banks land based on three main pillars. A, how is the real economy doing? Do I have credit-worthy borrowers out there that are looking for financing? Are they looking for financing in the first place? So what's the loan demand out there? And third, what's the yield that I make on that loan against the capital that I need to attach to that loan for regulatory purposes? If QE has brought interest rates to negative territory in Europe, for instance, and credit spreads were very tight, loan yields were incredibly non-appealing for banks. And the credit worthiness as companies were becoming more leveraged and the economy wasn't really running very hot, was not great either. So banks ended up lending less during QE. We had already seen that in Japan in the 90s, but we don't want to learn from history. And we kept doing the same mistake. So There have been quite a lot of negative consequences from prolonged QE, Adam. So that's a very valid question from your side. And second, when it comes to the reaction function ahead, I think Powell was trying to scream effectively since March, April this year. He started using Volkeresque jargon already in March, April this year, especially mentioning plenty of times the following sentence, we will keep (laughs) at it. And keeping at it is the name of the last Volker's book. I mean, Volcker was the last person that had to fight inflation seriously, and he made one single mistake in his process, which was at the first round of fighting inflation, he gave up too easily. He thought he had actually tamed inflation, but he ended up discovering that it didn't. And so two years later, he needed to raise interest rates even more, sending 10-year treasuries to 15% to slow down inflation. It ended up causing recessions, a lot of damage to the real economy. And Powell knows this. He wants to learn from history and he understands that after being so wrong for so much time on inflation, remember in 2021, the Federal Reserve was still doing quantitative easing, was still super accommodative. They didn't see this coming. They've been wrong. Now they don't want to be wrong again, which means they will keep at it. So the reaction function will be like somebody driving a car, but rather than looking in front, looking in the rear view mirror, because they'll be only slowing down when enough damage is done when inflation is dropping, but inflation is the most lagging indicators of all. In the cycle, it drops even after a recession has already hit, which means the Fed will likely keep policy tight, even as it becomes increasingly clear that the recession is with us.
3: That often leads to that second leg down, too. I think in all of the recessions, you get this first leg down, you get the declaration of a recession, and then you actually get a second leg down in markets, I mean. So the economy is very different than markets. You've got, I think, the sample size of seven in that, but there is usually a second leg down in this type of environment. And I'm confused a little bit why everyone's cheering for the pivot as the pivot seems to be kind of a funny thing. If you pivot, something's probably gone wrong or broken. How are you contemplating that? And as you look into these forward-looking indicators and things that you're looking at today, what are you
4: seeing in that realm? I'm going to try and share my screen here with you. What I want to share here is 2001, which is a period that resembles a lot, in my opinion, what we're going to see in 2023. Let me try to give some context before we go into the table and also for people just listening to that. I think 2023 is going to resemble 2001 very closely. And why do I think that? Let's take a step back. 1999 and 2000 are extremely similar to 2020 and 2021. And why do I say that is because basically in 1999, 2000, you got these excess animal spirits in the market. You got anything that had a .com after their name trading at 200 times earnings. I mean, just ridiculous stuff, excess animal spirits. That was exactly the same we saw in 2020 and 2021. 2022 is the equivalent of the second half of 2000, when the Federal Reserve decided to raise interest rates. They raised interest rates to 6.5% at the end of 2000. And what it ended up doing during 2000 is it busts the dot-com bubble, exactly like we took away the excess animal spirits in 2022. Well, the high beta stuff actually got hammered very hard, and altcoins and all that stuff actually drove down 70 80%. Many of the SPAC companies are worth nothing. So we are taking away the excess animal spirits exactly like we did in 2000. That is the reflection of tight fiscal and monetary policy, exactly like in the 2000s. Now, 2001 was a reflection in markets and in the economy of the 2000 tight fiscal and monetary policy. 2023 is going to be the reflection of the tight monetary and fiscal policy in 2022, So you need to ask yourself what happened in 2001, if that is the reference period for 2023. Now let's go back into this table. Let's specifically look at the returns between August 2000 and March 2001. Or actually, I think there is a better way to visualize that. So if you give me a second, I will give you the 2001 table of returns. This is total 2001 returns. What happened in 2001 was the following. Earnings dropped like a stone the labor market weakened materially, job losses in the second half of 2001, and the Federal Reserve, going back to Mike's point, did a massive pivot, a true pivot. They cut interest rates by 500 basis points in 15 months. So that's the equivalent of bringing rates to zero by the beginning of 2024. So you would expect that during this process, stocks went through the roof. Then think twice. Have a look at the asset class returns here. In 2001, okay. the best asset class returns were in bonds. Well, not a surprise. The Federal Reserve is cutting rates by 500 basis point, I'm going to guess bonds are going to perform very well. Cash also did well because you started from 6.5%, so the average return on cash was roughly 4% as the Federal Reserve cut rates. Anything else, let's have a look at the S&P 500, large cap equity over there negative 12%. So let's think about this for a second. The Fed cut rates by 500 freaking basis point in a year. And the S&P dropped another 12%. What? The dollar is not here, but the dollar appreciated 7% that year with the Federal Reserve cutting rates basically to 1%. So what's happening? What happened there? It's the second leg down that Mike is discussing. It's the second leg down that happens when The first leg is already sort of exhausted. It's a valuation adjustment. It's a multiple compression from excesses back to something more normal, let's say, from long-term. The second leg of the bear market, it's an economic reality kicking in. It's people losing their jobs. It's consumer spending dropping. It's industrial production dropping. It's earnings dropping, et cetera, et cetera. That second leg of the bear market, it's rather a slog. It's a slow grind down. It's much less volatile than the first leg. But the Fed pivot doesn't solve that problem because a Fed pivot is an accommodation of monetary policy that will only be reflected nine to 12 months later. So that's a story for 2024. In 2023, you still need to go through that second leg of the bear market that is very well reflected, I think, in this 2001 table. I think, Alpha, the
3: other thing is really interesting here that not too many market participants have been around for which is a true, as you said, slog of a bear market, where you were down 9% in large cap equities in 2000, you You're down 11% in 2001, and then 2002 down another 22%. So three years of negative performance. And I don't think that most portfolios, we reached maximum, let's call it peak 60-40 at some point in 2021. I don't think most participants in the market are actually aware of this reality that you actually get two, three, four years of just negative performance. And if you're withdrawing or have obligations for the portfolio, you have divestitures, whether you're paying out an endowment, you're paying out a retirement, that's extremely destructive to wealth. You're having an income source come out. It goes down 9%. Some income comes out, it goes down 11 Some income comes out and it's down 22%. This leads to pretty catastrophic destruction of the
4: wealth that's supposed to provide some sort of income stream. And you are I think totally right, Mike. And it also leads to second round effects, which are vital for asset performance. So think this year that the inflows of retail people into ETFs has been massively positive still. Net flows going through ETFs. If you're losing your job next year, then you are not going to allocate further into equity markets. You're actually going to try and raise some cash. So the way you raise some cash is basically you sell your equity portfolio. And on top of it, if you have a residential investment, which has become a thing, which was quite common, I should say, between developed markets as the rental yields between 2014 and 2021 were exceptionally good and mortgage rates were dropping like a stone, Quite a lot of people have actually invested in real estate one way or another. Now, as long as things are going good and people are employed, they pay rent and risk-free rates are very low and you are not losing your job. Basically, the real estate market doesn't drop like a stone, but it freezes because affordability for new buyers is just terrible. It's the worst in over 50 years. It's a combination of high house prices and very high mortgage rates by recent standards. Wages have not increased materially, so that makes the equation impossible for new marginal buyers. But prices are not materially dropping, yet they've started to drop. Let's be honest, in Canada and Australia, we're already 10% down from the top in a few months. And if I look at the annualized pace of drop in Case-Shiller prices in the US, we're also looking at the same pace, annualized, of the great financial crisis already. So it will get 15, 20% drawdown, to say the least in my estimate, by the end of next year, that only brings us back, though, to roughly Q1 2021 levels, so not even prior to pandemic levels. Before we get there, what we need to see is people forced to sell, because marginal buyers are just cut out, but sellers are saying, I don't need to sell. I'm doing good. I'm okay. People are still paying rent. Unemployment rate is 3.7%. I don't see the problem. I don't need to sell. When you start to have some for sellers, they will need to hit the lower bid. And the moment they hit the lower bid, somebody else will get a tap on the shoulder, especially on institutional investors that now we're looking at a risk free rate at 4%, 5%. Why are you owning rental yields, basically, or investment in property like bonds or investments like that that are returning as a cap rate something like the same? And you're getting exposure to drawdown ahead of you when it comes to the asset price and potentially a drawdown as well in economic activity ahead. So you get up on the shoulders and this will actually, as you suggested, Mike, compound this log on the way down in equity prices and real estate prices that we are likely to see, in my opinion, in 2023.
2: While you were chatting, I was listening and then also sort of looking. It is remarkable how closely 2000 returns look like the 2022 returns. You had a 9% loss on the year, but the peak to trough loss was about 17%. And although the calendar year loss in 2001 was on the order of 10 to 12% total return for S&P, there was another peak to trough loss of 29% in that year. It was a lot more painful than that subsequent 12% loss seemed. And then, of course, there was another major drawdown into the final bottom in 2003. The full drawdown in the S&P there was on the order of 50% between March 2000 and early 2003. And then, of course, the market really kicked into gear. But it's important, as you say, to recognize that the market didn't bottom until well over a year after the Fed started to pivot. And there was another major leg down, which was larger than the first leg down after the Fed pivoted before we finally reached the final bottom after that long two and a half year grind?
4: Adam, this is a perfect diagnosis. And the story goes that effectively, if you look at stock market bottoms in a cyclical economic downturn, they tend to happen when two conditions are met. A, PMI or earnings are very close to bottoming or actually have already bottomed, which means the negativity is well understood by market consensus and by analysts. Earnings have been revised down materially. PMIs have hit 45. I mean, we're talking about serious pain being priced and recognized by market participants. So you're very advanced in the downgrade economic cycle. And the second condition is that the monetary policy conditions have been already accommodated for a while. A while generally is at least six or nine months of accommodation of monetary policy. Nowadays, none of the two conditions are met. We have had some downgrades in analyst expectations for earnings from 10% year-on-year SP 500 earnings per share next year. It was 10%, the analyst consensus, as is now 5% growth in earnings for 2023. Still a positive number, so there has been some negative revision not nearly enough to be consistent with the recession, where the average drawdown in earnings is rather 15 to 20% negative. So there is quite some way to go there. PMIs are dropping, but forward leading indicators are not suggesting at all that we are done with PMIs dropping. So we are not yet ticking that first box. Second, we should have monetary policy accommodation already behind us for some quarters. We are looking at the Federal Reserve, which is going to keep hiking. And then the market seems to want to cherish on a Fed pause. So Fed pause with Fed funds rate at 45 to 5%. That's quite tight levels of risk-free rates. That's not accommodation. That's keeping a tight monetary policy for longer, which is going to reverberate into weaker economic activity. So the conditions for a bottom in risk assets seem to me To be validated at the earliest in Q3, Q4, 2023, because the economic cycle needs to play out. It's going to take some quarters. It's going to take even longer to convince the Federal Reserve to actually start easing. And then you need some time for this easing to be reflected in economic conditions as well. So I think 2023 is a year where people need to be very selective with their allocation in credits, in equities. They need to look at fundamentals because the damage being created by tight fiscal and monetary policy in 2022 is going to be reflected in the economic reality of 2023. So you're looking at, if you have to be allocated as a long term investor, you're looking at strong balance sheet companies, companies that are not subject to cyclical earnings activity, cyclical economic activity. You're looking at defensive stock market sectors. You're looking at the strongest balance sheet companies within the credit spread area, You have to be defensive. This is not the time to go and buy over-levered companies that would benefit from tailwinds in economic activity and lose monetary policy. We are nowhere near that point yet.
2: The market seems to be pricing in a perfect soft landing. The market is pricing in forward-looking discount rates. So they're sort of expecting discount rates at equilibrium in a couple of years at around three, three and a half percent. So risk markets are pricing that level long-term discount rates, and they aren't pricing in any real earnings recession at all. I think it was Bridgewater that published a really interesting study that showed that if you adjust for the change in discount rates this year, that the S&P is actually more expensive now than it was coming into the year. So they're actually pricing earnings at a higher level than they were coming into the year, all of the drop in prices had just been a result of market participants discounting higher discount rates for longer. And not even the level of discount rates that the Fed has continued to promulgate. They're still discounting much lower rates than the Fed has tried to communicate that they're targeting.
4: That's correct. So, Adam, I looked at the bond market. It's my home turf, basically. And I want to share the screen again to look at the many dimensions that the bond market has with it. It's not just looking at 10-year treasuries up or down, but there are many dimensions. So this is what I call the volatility-adjusted market dashboard, and it's the interest rate section of it. It's a tool that I use to monitor market moves across jurisdictions, across asset classes, and to standardize them Color code them by the standard deviation of the move. So, the bigger is the magnitude of the move, the stronger the color. So, dark red, dark green would actually catch your eye. And that would mean that the move has been very large according to historical standards in that subasset class. So, when I look at the US rates move over the last month, I see three very interesting points. Let's start from volatility. So, if I look at swaption volatility. So it sounds complicated, but it's really the implied volatility that fixed income participants are assigning to interest rates in the future. So how volatile is a two-year treasury future going to be or a five-year treasury future going to be over the next year and over the next three months? That's what we're pricing. It's a bit like trying to look at the VIX, but rather for the bond market, to give you an idea. Now, look at that dark green, in implied volatility in a year from now for two, five, and 10-year rates. So what's this telling you is that bond market investors are basically being pretty sure that the Federal Reserve is not going to make volatile monetary policy decisions next year. They're going to stick to a long Fed pause. It's going to be very predictable. Fed funds are going to be at 5%. And the hurdle to change this, so to raise to 7% or to drop to 3% in 2023, is not very high. Sorry, the hurdle is very high. So the appetite to take volatile monetary policy decisions is not going to be there. In other words, implied volatility in the bond markets is going to come down. That's what the bond market is betting on. Now, this is the first interesting thing. The second is also reflected in the yield curves. So if you look at that box there, OIS Curves, Those are yield curves, not in the treasury market, but in the OIS market, which I prefer. And it's a cleaner expression of what traders think about the Fed funds path over the next two, five, 10, 30 years. You see two interesting points. The first is the curve is flattening very aggressively between the two and the five year and the two and the 10 year. See the green colors in two fives and two stands there. Interestingly, it's also steepening or it had been steepening between, say, The five and the third year part, the 10 and the third year part. So what's this telling you again is that bond market participants are thinking along these lines. There is going to be an economic slowdown, not a very strong recession, but an economic slowdown. It's reflected in this volatility section. We expect the Fed to just do nothing with it. So to just keep rates where they are, even if we are going through a slowdown. So what that means is that two-year interest rates are going to be pinned at some point because they're highly influenced by the Fed policy. So they're going to basically stick them to 4.5% or wherever they are, which means the economic weakness must be reflected further on on the curve, 5-year, 10-year, which means the curve keeps inverting as basically this tight policy will reverberate into economic weakness later on. So the tighter the Fed is, during a recession, the more likely it is there is long-lasting damage to the economy. And that is reflected in a flat yield curve between two-year and 10-year and two-year and five-year. But when you look at five-year and 30-years, what the market is thinking is, as you suggested, Adam, this is going to be a, an economic slowdown, maybe a very shallow recession. If The Fed really follows this curve and cut rates to 3% in five years. That's probably enough to accommodate conditions. Naturally, over the very long term, economic growth can rebound a bit higher over the next 10 years, 30 years. We can go back to a normal growth level. I can basically price it in in a steeper curve in the very long end. So the market seems comfortable with the idea that the Fed pause is going to do some damage. The damage is not going to be incredibly big. So the Federal Reserve will have to cut rates in 24, 25, but to 3%, 3 3.5%, levels which are roughly neutral, a bit above neutral, and that will be enough to restore economic growth in the long term. So it can then be priced up further in the curve. Again, if you look at the forward OIS rates, that section there tells you the future Fed funds path being priced by the market. So if you see Three months, one month, six months, one month, one year, one month is telling you what the one month Fed fund rate will be in three months, in six months, in one year. And look at that. It's basically pricing that rates will be between four and five percent for 18 months. So that's a long pause rather than a pivot. And then year two, year three, we go towards three percent and we stay there. But guys, a recession is not consistent with the Federal Reserve cutting rates so slowly, and stopping at 3%. We talked about 2001, and I want to give the example here. What is a Fed pivot? This is a Fed pivot. Look at this chart. Fed funds were 6.5%. They were cut by 475 basis points during the recession. Same story in 2008. This is a cutting cycle, which is consistent with the recession. Not 200 basis points spread across three years. That Adam basically validates your thesis that the market is sitting on a situation where they think it's going to be all controllable, all linear, predictable, and a slow easing by the Federal Reserve postponed to 24-25, it's going to be enough to actually keep conditions loose enough for the economy to restore their economic growth in 26-27 and going forward. So that's where we sit today. And I do not particularly agree with this assessment. I think that the risk reward in taking these stunts as your base case is not great if you focus on forward-leading indicators, which are actually telling a different story. That we're not going to
2: see a soft landing. It's going to be a deeper recession that will last for longer and have a much larger impact on earnings.
4: That's true. So let's look at some forward-looking indicators that I look at. Because my approach at the macro Compass, Adam and Mike, is very data-driven. I mean, macro... Everybody can come up with a narrative. We can be a good storytellers and say the economy is going to bounce next year. We can all make up a case for something but data actually speaks louder than narratives, if you ask me. So I looked at a bunch of my forward-looking indicators, and I tried to grasp where are we going looking at those. So one of it is my global credit impulse. And this metric is a prop metric that I built, and it aggregates credit creation data for the five largest economies in the world. And what this really does is it looks at how much money are we getting, the private sector, how much money are we getting in our bank account? Are we increasing the amount of money we have at disposal? Is it increasing fast? Is it keeping pretty steady? And of course, the more money we have at disposal, the more money corporates, private sector agents have at disposal, the more likely it is nominal spending is going to pick up. Growth is going to pick up. Earnings are going to pick up. Inflation is going to pick up later on this is a very good forward-looking indicator. It's the orange line. It's on the left-hand side, and it's in real terms. So it's inflation-adjusted credit creation. It tells us how much real spending power the private sector has at any point in time. And you can see how in 2020, 2021, we saw this massive increase in the orange line, very fast. And look at the blue line. The blue line is earnings per share growth in the S&P nine months later. So it's giving you a lead time of nine months. Like a Swiss clock, it basically also moved up aggressively and earnings grew 50% plus year on year in 2021 as the reflection of a lot of real economy money that was thrown at the private sector to spend. Reopenings actually helped this process and so earnings also went through the roof. But look at what has happened recently to the leading indicator, the global credit impulse it has collapsed very aggressively. And why? Because fiscal stimulus has stopped completely all over the world since the first half of 2021. Bank lending in real terms in some jurisdictions is decent, in some is pretty sluggish. And the Chinese are deleveraging at a very rapid pace, which is basically destroying money by drawing down real estate prices in China. So the combination is actually generating a very negative credit impulse.
2: Do levels matter here, Alf? So my understanding of what happened to run this orange line up so high in 2020 was that effectively the central bank via the treasury created a massive amount of reserves in the banking system when they hosed money into everybody's accounts in order to offset the loss of income during the lockdowns. I've recently looked at the levels of reserve deposits. And while certainly the bottom two quintiles of the earnings distribution in the US. We've seen their reserves dwindle and normalize, and they're now starting to feel a pinch from a savings standpoint. But the top three quintiles by earnings, in other words, the wealthier households, the middle and upper middle class, are still very flush in terms of the amount of demand deposits, the amount of capital at their disposal for spending power. And we're starting to see inflation, well, not starting to see, about three months ago or so, we saw inflation move from more of a goods-oriented phenomenon to a services-oriented phenomenon. So where I'm going with this is the higher income segment of the population is still relatively flush with cash. They also tend to be the segment of the population that has a higher marginal propensity to spend on services. Is it possible that the levels confound some of the signals that we get from rates of change in the credit impulse analysis that you're doing here?
4: Very solid question. And the answer is twofold. The first is the unfunded fiscal stimulus, I should say. So fiscal deficits are one of the strongest explanatory variables behind this credit impulse here in 2021. Think about it. I mean, basically, the U.S. government blew a hole in their balance sheet and sent checks at home to people. And when the private sector gets a check from the government or taxes are cut, it's actually net worth increasing for us. We have more money at disposal without a liability attached to it. When you get a mortgage, you also get all of a sudden more money than you had before and you go and buy a house, but hey, you have a mortgage on the other side of your balance sheet, correct? When the government actually sends a check it on to you and it's on a fiscal deficit perspective, unless you are buying the treasury, but you were not buying the treasury, as you were saying before, the Fed was buying the treasury, the banks were buying the treasury. So you do not have a liability attached to it, you just have more net worth. And that, in real terms, as you can see on that chart, increased so rapidly that the rate of change was incredibly important for earnings. Now, in the credit impulse, historically speaking, the rate of change is a much better explanatory power than the absolute level of money in the system, Adam. And why that is the case is because our system is based on continuous money creation. Over time, since the 70s, once we decided that we could create money without being pegged to a hard asset like the gold we basically have been creating money regularly. Every year, the amount of disposable money for the real economy grows. So we take more debt on, we have fiscal deficits basically as a normal feature in developed markets, wherever you look. Europe, Japan, the US, we have been doing fiscal deficits for years now, for decades. So we keep growing, which means you're looking at the steady growth in the amount of money available for people. It's the rate of change of this growth that explains more as a better explanatory power on earnings, on asset classes performance with a lag. That's why I tend to focus on that. And the second point is this is in real terms, which means if you want to explain earnings, GDP growth, real retail sales, you need to look at this in an inflation adjusted way. Because obviously, the more money you have in the system, the more spendable money you have in the system, unless the supply adjusts as well, so there are more goods and more services, will over time result... In slightly higher prices, which is also what we have seen happening in our economy over the last 40 years. So looking at the real credit creation cuts away this pollution effect. Interestingly, the distribution of money available to the private sector is very interesting. And you have been spot on in your analysis, because if you look at the bottom 20%, these guys have seen the excess deposits created basically by fiscal stimulus in most cases, Window completely. So they are reaching out to credit cards to bridge Mm -hmm. the problem. What they are doing is that they're basically taking credit, short term credit on a credit card basis. They need to pay that back at the end of the month or after three months, but they're doing this to try and kick the can down the road. So they are looking pretty bad. They're feeling the impact of this negative drop much more. The lowest part, the bottom 30% of US consumers looking at the volume actually account for the largest percentage of volume of consumption in the US. If it's true that the higher cohort will spend more on services, it's also true that on an aggregate basis, the lower cohort, so the last 30% of the bottom distribution, will be the one influencing more on an aggregate basis where retail sales are going to go, for instance, or where GDP is going to go. So if you combine all of this together, it still tells me that the prediction that the credit impulse is saying about earnings, that they will shrink by 15 to 20% by the end of 2023, is something that historically has proven to be a relatively robust forward-looking indicator. There are more because you can't judge the probability of a recession and the timing of a recession based on one indicator. For instance, okay. if we look at the conference Board top 10 leading indicator index, so the conference board aggregates the most statistically significant four looking indicators. And as you can see, they put them all in an index, which is here in orange. And here I looked at the year on year change in this index. So every single time you see the trigger here, that there has been a negative print for two or more months in a row of this index, you always had a recession with an average lead time of seven months. Now we're sitting here. The trigger has been hit in August, 2022. It was the second month in a row where the year-on-year change in this index was negative, which means with an average lead time, you should see the start of a recession in March, 2023. And if we want to define a recession, the recession, again, is when people start losing their job, when earnings start to become negative year-on-year. It's not enough for GDP to drop, but also you need real spending power to drop, jobs losses, and earnings recession. The track record is immaculate. Over the last 50 years, this trigger, year-on-year, year, negative prints for two or more months in a row, with a seven-month average lead time, as always anticipated the recession, 74, 80, 90, 90, 2001, 2008, 2020. Will this time be different? I don't know. But this looks like a second relatively robust indicator, together with the global credit impulse, that by March, April next year, we are going to be in a recession. And the other question, and then I'm going to take a pause, is how bad is this recession going to be? But it's hard to say there's going to be a recession, but how hard is it going to be? So let's say that it starts looking at a bunch of indicators and people can read the full article. It's free on the Macro Compass. Let's say the median time expected by by models is roughly March, May next year. How bad is it going to be? That's the second question. And the answer, looking at a bunch of indicators, is relatively bad. So if you look at the housing market, for instance, in combination with what it's called the sum rule from Claudia Sam, an economist that worked at the Fed, the housing market is vital for the economy. Actually, there was an economist that said, I think the housing market is the business cycle. And I tend to agree with him because it explains alone roughly 15 to 16% of US GDP and employment. But most importantly, it's a very cyclical market. It's mortgage backed. So when interest rates go up or down, it tends to move fast. It tends to move quick. And there are so many ancillary activities to the housing market, construction workers, brokers, furniture shops, durable goods, expenditure, et cetera, et cetera. So if you look at a housing index built by the National Association of Home Builders, it's in orange here. It's plotted on the left side and it's inverted it leads by 12-month U.S. unemployment. You can see a pretty tight relationship over time. Unemployment rate is the blue line. Where we are standing here is a, one of the most rapid deterioration in the housing index we have seen over the last 30 years. We have discussed about it before housing affordability. The housing market is freezing. Sales year on year are down 40%. There is no activity anymore, effectively, in the housing market. This tends to precede unemployment rates Increasing with a lag of 12 months. That would also put us roughly in May-June 2023 as the recession starting time, but the magnitude of this recession, this index is calling unemployment rate at 7% by beginning of 2024. It's roughly double where we are today. It's a lot of job losses. So it could be relatively bad. And the sum rule, Claudia Sum defined a recession starting when the three months moving average of unemployment rate goes 50 basis point or higher than the last 12 months low. The last 12 months low in unemployment rate are 3.5%, which means that if unemployment rate in the US on a three-month moving average will be above 4%, you have already started a recession, defined as job losses. We should probably be there by, say, May next year, but we're going to go further, much further than that, in unemployment rate at 7%, according to this indicator, which is quite a nasty recession.
3: Amazing. These are great. That's a great, very positive talk. (laughs) It's really interesting because I think to me, it's an interesting set of circumstances where previously, over the last decade, it has behooved investors to be FTD, buy the dip constantly, don't do anything. Private equity, private debt. There has been no need to liquidate a position or move on from a position because we haven't had defaults. And now we're in a very different regime. We're in a regime that most of the market hasn't seen before. You talk to the younger generation, and I was saying interest rates are 4.5%. They've never been this high. And I mean, I recall buying a Canada savings bond at 19.5% in 1981. So they can go a lot higher. (laughs) Things can go a lot more awry than you might think. I want to leave hope here. This is an opportunity for active investing, correct? correct? What I want to make sure people take away from this conversation, the regime has shifted. You're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. You're in a very different place, and it requires different thinking and different actions in order to achieve some semblance of success, And I think that when you're looking at environments like this, whether it's what we do or what you're providing to people, both retail and institutional managers, is that inflation volatility leads to economic volatility, which leads to asset class volatility. And this dispersion is larger now than it's been over the last decade. That large dispersion provides opportunities for profit
4: in the active management space. I can't agree more, Mike. Again, I'm a chart guy, probably understood it by now. I really like charts as a visualization way. And I know we are on a podcast, but I'll try to walk people through this. The 2020s are going to be toxic for people that are basically still stuck in the 2010s. In the 2010s, a portfolio of bonds and stocks and real estate possibly held had a sharp ratio of one and a half plus. This is a hedge fund kind of pressure, guys. I mean, we are talking about an incredible amount of performance against so little drawdowns and volatility, which invited, Mike, as you said, people to just do nothing, just own assets, do nothing, don't risk manage, because the Fed is going to take care of risk management for you. Don't worry. It's perfect. The 2020s are going to be materially different. And that's what I try to explain with this chart. It's called Don't Confuse Macro Trends with Macro Cycles. And yes, there will be some change in trends. So I expect growth to actually keep dropping. There are structural reasons, demographics, stagnant productivity, why growth in the developed markets is going to keep trending down. The trend in inflation, interestingly, might stop going down because we are doing some stuff that is actually inflationary here. We are doing deglobalization, we are onshoring supply chain. We are rethinking our dependence from energy, especially in Europe. So we might do some things that are on the margin inflationary. The most important thing though, rather than these trends, are that macro cycles will be much more severe, much more vicious than before, both on the way up and on the way down, which means if you're an investor, macro risk management will, should be at the key of what you do. Passively holding assets is going to be a bit more complicated when it comes to risk return profiles. And in this chart, you can see the orange lines that are the cycles. I expect these cycles around the trends to be much, much bigger than they were in the 2010s, which require people to have a deep understanding of macro, a deep understanding of portfolio management, risk management techniques, eyes on the ball. It requires people to study macro and get... That kind of information and knowledge we are, for example, trying to share here, Mike and Adam, with the work you are doing as well, people should get more attentive to risk management and macro cycles much more than they were in the 2010s. Speaking of that,
2: you just launched a service in furtherance of that. So maybe let's close with you telling people what you've started to offer and what that
4: business model is going to look like and how people can get engaged. Thanks, Adam, for the chance. So the Macro Compass has been a very successful newsletter for 2022. It's actually probably the biggest in the world on the macro space. It's 120,000 people reading me. Very happy about that. Humbled, actually. I realized, though, that the newsletter is a very good thing, but it's not enough to achieve this level of macro risk management that is needed, I think, in the 2020s. So I decided to complement that and to make it much more frequent, tailored for both retail and institutional with different products on offer, but also complemented with long-term ETF portfolio, tactical trade ideas, and interactive macro tools. That's really the important thing. People should get a chance to really understand and track market moves like the institutional investors have the chance to do because they have access to a certain set of data, very expensive subscription models, et cetera, et cetera. I want to democratize this process of people being able to play around with macro, understand the different dots they need to connect in the space and enhance their ability to macro risk manage. And also, I'm going to do a lot of courses next year. Because I think we need to really go deep into how our monetary system works, how the monetary plumbing works. I've been in the trenches doing exactly that. Portfolio management, risk management, that basically will do everything on one platform, which is on the macrocombust.com. If people want to go and check it out, there are different products for different type of investors from retail to more sophisticated retail to institutional investors. Fantastic. And I think it's at macroelf on Twitter as well. Yes, my Twitter handle is at macroalf and there you'll find more snippets, I think, than anything else, and especially some pizza and bread recipes. I'm Italian after all.
3: <laughs> I do envy that when I see the fresh pizzas for me with the nice of prosciutto on it yeah. and the egg and the real stuff. It angered me a couple of times when I saw it because I know how good it is.
4: <laughs> and I was sitting there. Like, we not we, we able can to fix that. that. We can fix that. I can just yes. have you as a guest. I mean, southern Done. Italians are very warm people. They, Love they generally it. try to share food with others it's part of the culture i love it
2: magnificent we'll take you up on that for sure
4: yeah definitely absolutely well thanks alfonso piccatello the first try was better than the last one mike but it's really (laughs) complicated so i'm I'm gonna try okay with all my italian accent and that's alfonso piccatello oh alfonso piccatello very well done the macro compass macro alf thanks for taking the time today yes thank you so much and my we'll I'm we'll really a again. pleasure and every time you want to have me back just ping me up and I'll be here fantastic have a great weekend thanks Al you too ciao
0: thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast you will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts we also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.
2: Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizon's Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange, under the ticker symbol hraa and is sub-advised by resolve asset management hraa is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes including but not limited to equity indices fixed income indices interest rates commodities and currencies hraa gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities hraa will take long or short positions using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes to learn more about this please visit www.horizonsetfs.com hraa to read about the etf's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the etf